This is The Rounds Table. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Rounds Table. I'm Chris Giuliano, one of the rotating co-hosts on The Rounds Table. And today we have Claudia Hand with us. Claudia is a internal medicine clinical pharmacist. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on today. Today, our episode is going to be called An Ounce of Prevention. The first article we will review is looking at pantoprazole in the ICU to prevent death. And the second article will evaluate aspirin use in diabetic patients to prevent vascular events. So let's go ahead and we'll just jump right into the first article, which was published by Craig and colleagues in October in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the title of the article was Pantoprazole in Patients at Risk for GI Bleeding in the ICU. Chris, what is the bottom line or main message of this article? So this international randomized controlled trial of 3,298 ICU patients that were at a high bleed risk, they randomized patients to either receive IV pantoprazole, 40 milligrams, or placebo. And they actually found no difference in their primary outcome. Their primary outcome was death at 90 days. They also looked at other secondary outcomes, and there was a difference in clinically important GI bleeding. But we'll go more into detail as we go along. So can you briefly describe why you chose this article? I chose this article because practically everyone in the ICU receives proton pump inhibitors such as pantoprazole. And this is a common practice both in the U.S. and internationally. There haven't been lots of large RCTs evaluating the efficacy of using pantoprazole to prevent stress ulcers in the ICU. And I was actually really surprised to see this study come out. And then I was even more surprised to see that they saw no difference in their primary outcome, so that it didn't affect death. And so I'm like, well, I better dig into this more so I can see how this really affects my day-to-day practice. And what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial in six countries. And who were the patients in the study? So these were patients that were greater than 18, admitted to the ICU, and had at least one risk factor for clinically important GI bleeding. These risk factors included shock, use of anticoagulants, they were on renal replacement therapy, mechanical ventilation, liver disease, or coagulopathy. So they did have to have one of those risk factors for GI bleeding. They excluded patients. These are only the important exclusion criteria. They excluded patients that were going to be on daily acid suppressants anyway, and then patients presenting with a GI bleed. So the overall patient population study, the average age was around 67. There were slightly more males And then they used two different mortality risk estimates. One was the SAPS-2, which was a score of around 49 on average. And then the SOFA score was around 9. Now, these numbers are actually a little bit discordant from each other, but somewhat concordant with the overall mortality rate seen in the study of about 30%. So what was the primary question that the study evaluated? So this study evaluated death at 90 days in patients that either received placebo or pantoprazole 40 milligrams. Their secondary outcome was a composite outcome. This had a few different parts to it. One was clinically important GI bleeding. One was infectious complications. This included pneumonia or C. diff. 
So they were looking at adverse effects of receiving proton pump inhibitors. Or myocardial ischemia. There's some observational studies that have seen increased rates of myocardial ischemia, but this data isn't incredibly strong. I was kind of surprised to see that they included this in their composite. The clinically important GI bleeding had an interesting definition. It was defined as a decrease in either systolic, diastolic, or mean arterial pressure by 20, or they went up on the vasopressor doses by 20%, or they had a decrease in the hemoglobin by at least two or received two units of PRVCs. And they measured this outcome at up to 90 days after the initial receipt of pantoprazole. Very interesting. And what were the study findings? So they've actually found no difference in mortality at 90 days. The mortality rate in the pantoprazole group was 31.1% versus 30.4% with placebo. And the results didn't change when they adjusted for a few small differences between the groups. They didn't find a difference in their composite outcome. The composite outcome with, remember, the GI bleeding, infectious complications, or MI, and that was 21.9% versus 22.6%, but there was a difference in clinically important GI bleeding, and that was higher in the placebo group, 2.5% with pantoprazole versus 4.2% with placebo. And they didn't include a p-value with this, but the confidence interval didn't cross one, showing that it was statistically significant. And that's an absolute difference of 1.7% for clinically important bleeding, which comes to be a number needed to treat of about 59. Oh, wow. Very interesting. You know, are there any important facts or observations you want to make about this study or anything that really caught your eye that you want us to know? So I guess the biggest concern that I had with this study was the choice of the primary outcome was death. Now, usually death is a really great primary outcome, um, but I don't know if I would expect that pantoprazole would necessarily prevent death in critically ill patients. I think it's still important to clinicians if it prevents bleeding. Very true. And they weren't able to determine this study whether that bleeding was due to an ulcer or due to gastrointestinal bleeding. It's just they had some type of bleeding. They did not do endoscopic evaluation of the source of the bleed. I don't think that it helps us with adverse events with pantoprazole. The authors mention underreporting of adverse events within the manuscript. And additionally, the study really wasn't powered to detect a difference in adverse events itself. So it's really hard to know if it led to differences in things like C. diff, or other infectious complications like pneumonia. Other observational studies have seen this. This study did not show a difference in these outcomes. Chris, you kind of briefly touched upon this regarding the study was not powered to find difference in adverse events. Are there other limitations that we haven't discussed? I think not knowing the reason for the bleeding is also important, um, not understanding if it was due to a stress ulcer I don't know if clinicians are going to be ready to stop using pantoprazole in the ICU, especially with the potential increased risk for bleeding with the placebo. And overall, what are your summaries or your take on the balance of the strengths versus weaknesses of this study? 
I think that this was a well-conducted randomized control trial that asked an important question, but maybe didn't ask the correct question. And maybe it's important, even if it doesn't prevent mortality, pantoprazole preventing bleeding will still be important to ICU practitioners. And so my conclusion does differ from the authors of the study. I think that we still have to think about bleeding in our ICU patients, even though I agree with the authors that it's unlikely to affect mortality overall. To evaluate other adverse effects such as C. diff or pneumonia, we have to look to other studies that are appropriately powered to answer these questions. You make a very valid point. So what are your main take-home points of this article? I think that the use of pantoprazole in the ICU will not affect mortality, but will likely have an impact on bleeding rates. So now after reading this study and fully evaluating it, do you think that this is going to affect your practice area? I do not think that using pantoprazole in the ICU for patients with appropriate risk factors will change after the publication of the study. All right. Thank you, Claudia. Let's go ahead and jump to your article. Okay. So the SEND trial, again, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial that included over 15,000 patients. The trial concluded that low-dose aspirin led to a lower risk of serious vascular events. However, it had an increase in bleeding events compared to placebo, and this was specifically evaluated in patients with diabetes who had no known cardiovascular disease. So why did you choose this article, Claudia? So I really wanted to do this article because many patients that I see in the hospital are on aspirin for primary prevention for cardiovascular disease. And it is well known that diabetes is associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. However, the literature to support aspirin use in these individuals is limited. And most recently in the summer, we saw multiple different articles, even published within the New England Journal of Medicine, which show that there was a lack of data of efficacy using aspirin for primary prevention in individuals. So those results from those studies and the study that I'm going to present are important because aspirin is not a benign medication and can increase the risk of bleeding events in patients. Therefore, it's always important to evaluate the risk versus benefit of every medication that our patients are on. Those are some great words there, Claudia. So what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and it was performed in various areas of the United Kingdom. And who were the patients that were included in the study? So patients who, um, who were diabetic, who were 40 years or older, and again, without cardiovascular disease. They excluded patients who had a clear indication or contraindication for aspirin use. Taking a closer look into our patient population, the average age was about 63. About 60% were male and 45% of the patients never smoked. 45 were former smokers, and only 10% of the patients enrolled were actually current smokers. And then their core morbidities, about 60% had hypertension. Majority, if not all patients, it was almost 100%, had type 2 diabetes. And around 75% of patients were on cholesterol-lowering therapy with statins. So what was the intervention in this study, Claudia? So patients were randomized to receive 100 milligrams of aspirin and coated or placebo. And what was their primary outcome? 
So the primary outcome was divided into safety and efficacy outcomes. For our efficacy outcomes for primary, it was any serious vascular event, which included non-fatal MI, non-fatal ischemic stroke or TIA, and death from any vascular cause. For our safety outcomes, this was first occurrence of any major bleeding event, which included intracranial hemorrhage, GI bleeding, bleeding in the eye, and any other serious bleeding that resulted in hospitalization, transfusion, or unfortunately led to fatal outcomes. And the key secondary events were any other vascular events or revascularization procedures, as well as GI tract cancer. Okay, interesting. So what were the main findings? So the main findings of this study show that serious vascular events occurred at a significantly lower percent of patients in the aspirin group, those 8.5 versus 9.6, and major bleeding event was significantly higher in the aspirin group, 4.1 versus 3.2. For the secondary outcomes, any vascular event or revascularization was statistically significant, however, there was no difference in gastrointestinal tract cancer. So the study did not report the number needed to treat or the number needed to harm. However, after calculation, the number needed to treat to prevent any serious vascular event was 91 patients, and the number needed to harm was 112. So these numbers are very close to one another. So that's really interesting. The number needed to treat and the number needed to harm are very close, which makes it hard to make a decision to add on aspirin in these patients. That is very true, and that's something that I'll be discussing um, in a little bit. So was there any interesting points or observations that you wanted to make about the study, Claudia? So I think it's really important to note that a large number of patients in the study had adequate blood pressure control, were not smoking. Again, only 10% of the patients were currently smokers as well as 75% were on statin therapy. And all of these factors are known to decrease cardiovascular disease, stroke, and mortality. So when applying the results of this paper, we really need to use caution to make sure our patients fit in the inclusion criteria of the study. And the bottom line is whether or not aspirin has a place in therapy for primary prevention in diabetic patients given the increased risk of bleeding. My thought is that we really need to look at the risk versus benefit in every patient that we are going to recommend or the patients that are even currently on aspirin. So were there, are there any important limitations that we haven't discussed yet? One thing that I did not mention was the majority of the patients enrolled in the trial had more well-controlled diabetes, um, an A1C of less than eight in about 80%. Thus, the results may not be generalizable to patients with more severe diabetes who we would expect to have a higher risk of vascular events. Okay, so can you summarize the take-home points for the article? So overall, I think the results of this study provides clinical guidance, which was previously lacking and should be applied to patients who have well-controlled diabetes, as well as who are optimized on blood pressure medications and our cholesterol medications as well. All right, so Claudia, um, so how is this going to affect your clinical practice? Are you going to be adding aspirin to your diabetic patients? So I think that's a really great question. 
if I have a patient who is newly diagnosed and we're optimizing their blood pressure and their cholesterol medication, I'm not sure if there's actually a need for aspirin. As well as we know the fact that if we increase our medications, adherence can decrease. So I think we really need to focus on optimizing the agents that the patient's already on that can decrease our cardiovascular events, especially because we know that aspirin can increase the risk of bleeding. All right. Great, Claudia. So let's go ahead and get, jump to our favorite part of the podcast, the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we're reading about. So over the holiday, I read that 75% of U.S. adults are taking a dietary supplement. And this actually did not surprise me. What did surprise me were the different reasons. And the three most common reasons was for weight loss, sports supplements, and generally as a herbal remedy. And this is really an issue in the U.S. because these products often don't really contain what is advertised and can contain harmful ingredients. And this saga in the U.S. has been going on for a while, and it makes me wonder how long dietary supplements can remain unregulated and what the tipping point is going to be that will lead to increased regulation. I think that's actually a really great point because I have so many patients that I see in the hospital setting that are always on different herbal medications. So I hope one day there's a little bit more regulation. I'm going to briefly discuss the article that I read actually over the holidays as well. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled The Major Causes of Death in Children and Adolescents in the United States. And the study showed that the leading cause of death in children or adolescents is first due to motor vehicle accidents and second due to firearm-related injuries. And I think this is really important to note because this can be a really good area for public health initiatives to take place to help decrease the leading causes of death in these individuals. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Claudia. And hopefully we can have you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Have a good night. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on the Roundtable. I'm Shaliza Halani, the Director of Special Segments. For this month's special segment, we are interviewing Dr. James Downer, Head of the Division of Palliative Care for the University of Ottawa. Previously on the Roundtable, we had reviewed the 2016 Canadian Law on Medical Assistance in Dying, or MAID. Today, we will touch on this again, but with respect to practical considerations for conversations with our patients and how to lead effective goals of care discussions surrounding this. Welcome to the show, Dr. Downer. Hi, Shaliza. So let's get right into it. There are many questions about how MAID fits into end-of-life options. How do you see discussions about MAID fitting into other end-of-life treatment options? And when do you feel it is appropriate to discuss this with your patient? So this is a very good question, and I would say that not everybody necessarily agrees on how MAID fits in to the spectrum of end-of-life treatment options in terms of how you discuss them with patients. There is a certain proportion of the medical community who thinks that MAID should be offered to people routinely as part of the range of treatment options for people nearing the end of life. And there are others who maybe take the position that we should be reactive and wait until a patient brings it up before starting to explore with them, right, that we don't bring it up ourselves. 
it is common for people nearing the end of life to make what are known as desire to die statements. Statements like, some days I just wish I wouldn't wake up or I just wish this were all over, which is not exactly the same thing as asking for medical aid in dying or wishing for a hastened death. And it's quite a far distance from somebody saying that they intend to commit self-harm or suicidality. So often, whenever you're confronted with a statement like a desire to die statement, that would generally be a reasonable invitation for you to start to explore with them uh, what their suffering is, what they're going through, why they made a desire to die statement, and how you might be able to respond to it. Interestingly, today in Ontario, people are going back into court to argue again about the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario's provision in our professional codes to make an effective referral if you're a conscientious objector, and people arguing about whether or not that should or should not be allowed to stand. Very interesting. So how do you see MAID fitting into palliative care and the delivery of high-quality palliative care? Are these discussions separate? Yeah, so ultimately, when you discuss MAID as an option, this is not really about just jumping into a discussion of, do you want me to give you a medication to end your life? Whenever somebody makes a request to have their life ended by a doctor, that should prompt a discussion about suffering, an exploration of what that person is experiencing, and an attempt to identify what might be a reversible contributor to their current mood state, if indeed this is something that is addressable, even if they are eligible for MAID and meet all other requirements, really you want to try to treat their suffering first and foremost. I think it's important as part of that conversation to understand what palliative care can do and cannot do. Right? I think in general, whenever there's a question in a conversation about palliative care, about whether the person is requesting medical aid in dying, that it's really important to be clear. Right? You have to clarify understanding of what medical aid in dying is, what palliative care is, and in what ways they are different. You have to confront fears, realistic fears and unrealistic fears, of course, about what suffering they might experience as they get closer to the end of their life, and help establish some realistic expectations for the outcome of palliative care, the outcome of medical aid in dying, and any other options they might be looking at. There are a lot of misconceptions about medical aid and dying and about palliative care, and those misconceptions contribute to a low level of satisfaction sometimes, of fear, and a loss of trust among patients and family members for us in the medical community. It's always best to be open. You have to mention all the options when you do in a very supportive and non-judgmental way. I like to use a third-person approach where someone, if somebody says, for example, geez, doctor, I, I just wish I didn't wake up someday, or you know, I really wish this were all over and I'd be dead, I would say to them, listen, um, you know, I explore their fears, I'd explore their concerns about this. But I would say sometimes when people say that, what they're doing is they're asking me for help, giving them a medication that might end their life. And sometimes when people say that, it's because they want to talk more about some of the difficulties that they're going through and see if I might be able to find ways to make them feel better. And if you ask it in that way, not necessarily pegging yourself to being in favor or against any one option, but giving the patient the space to explore it in their own speed and in their own way. Ultimately, remember that only 1% of people receive MAID in Canada at the time they die. It's actually quite a rare event. Most of the people who will discuss it will discuss it, but not ultimately pursue it. And so you don't have to think that just discussing MAID is going to make it very likely to happen. I think it's just very most important to just be honest and complete in any discussion. That makes sense. And as you said, treat the patient in front of you and the symptoms of the patient that is right in front of you. And I think finally, what are the current challenges or barriers to being able to offer MAID to patients who may meet criteria or the challenges that you may have encountered in having these discussions with the patient and their loved ones? I think 
there is still a very poor understanding among healthcare providers about medical aid in dying, about the process for obtaining medical aid in dying, and about the eligibility criteria. There is still a relatively small pool of willing providers and trained providers, and this does become a bit of an access issue for people who are eligible and looking to receive it. I'd say that's probably one of the bigger challenges, certainly outside of large urban areas, outside of quaternary referral centers is probably still quite a, you know, access is a bit hit and miss. One of the big problems we do encounter in healthcare is that there are sometimes expectations for people who want to receive made that they want it very, very rapidly. So they expect rapid availability of the service. Sometimes people will have initiated conversations with providers thinking that they've initiated the process of filling out paperwork and, of course, the 10-day reflection period when, in fact, that hasn't happened at all. And then the patient 10 days later will be very angry and shocked to learn that the process hasn't started and they still have to wait yet longer. Or sometimes they start a process in one location, they get transferred to another, and the new location insists that they restart the process with a whole new set of forms. And that can be very, very frustrating for people who feel that they're being made to wait longer than they should. Ultimately, it's important to note that there is a very low rate of dissatisfaction with access among people who actually receive MAIDs. It's actually quite atypical for people to report concerns about getting access to MAID. But that data set does not include the patients who didn't ultimately get MAID and might have had significant barriers barriers that, that stop them from getting made. And, and among family members that you ask afterwards, like, wh- are they frustrated about access? You know, the frustration may be a little bit more common when you look at all of the people who have been asking for made. But certainly, there have been a number of high-profile events in the media, people feeling like they had their access denied or impeded, or some people who just never got made at all, despite asking for it quite clearly. And I'd say these remain the issues that are coming to the forefront, regardless of whether they're very common, they do tend to attract a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Kind of similar challenges to those we may experience with a lot of options that we provide our patients with in general. Yeah. Just to, can I throw one more question at you? 100%. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Kind of a more general question. As a trainee and a PGY1 in internal medicine, what do you think I can do or my colleagues can do not only to inform ourselves more about this entire process, but to become more of a medical expert, if you will, in carrying out these kinds of conversations with our patients? There are a lot of efforts underway right now to standardize education, to make people more familiar with the process and the eligibility criteria for MAID. I think that regardless of whether you yourself are a willing provider who intends to do this or somebody who isn't yourself going to do it but understands that many of your patients may ask for it, or even if you're an objector and do not want to get involved, it's part, I think, of being able to properly counsel your patients on their options to be familiar with these things. So again, there are a lot of educational resources out there available through portals like the Canadian Medical Association, through the Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers, and others, where you can learn about what MAID is, what the process is, and the eligibility criteria so you can properly counsel your patients. And I think if you have any other questions, make sure that you know, because chances are there's somebody in your hospital or in your community who is probably someone who's a bit more experienced, a bit of an expert in this area, somebody that you can reach out to if you ever have questions about a specific case. Because again, the rules may change with time. So sometimes it's not a question of knowing all the answers yourself at any given time, but also knowing who you can turn to for help. Great. Thank you so much. Those are all the formal questions I have. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? Nothing else from my end. Thank you for joining us on the show, Dr. Downer. Thanks, Elisa. 
Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.